Hello and welcome to another New Energy Chinwag with myself, John Massey and Charlie Rattan. Hi, Charlie. Hiya. Um, today we thought we'd talk about something which we've kind of mentioned in passing quite a lot, but I don't think we've actually devoted an episode to it, and that's the subject of energy storage, um, which has been a, a big subject um, for the last few years. It's something that I certainly track and I certainly do run training events on. Um, and I guess I suppose to just to intro it, what I find certainly um, when talking to people is that it's a, it's an area which it covers so many different things. I think one of the issues with storage is how do you actually 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 break it down into a bunch of kind of meaningful business cases and meaningful applications because it can cover so many different um, parts of of the energy system it can cover so many different places that you can locate storage um there are lots of different time scales you can do storage over and there are lots of different things you can you can achieve with storage um i guess before we pitch in charlie anything from your side i mean when people talk to when people mention energy storage to you what, what pops into your head yeah it's um something that i increasingly come across uh, john certainly with regard we've talked in the past about hybrid um uh, schemes whereby it's not just a wind farm but it might be a wind farm and solar or wind farm and hydro or wind farm and hydrogen but one of the things that works um, well and what was increasingly being looked at by those developers still in the frame are larger scale developments but obviously involving um, battery storage uh, as much for time shifting as uh, as variability but um, that, that is, is routine now to investigate that at the early stages of large scale energy projects but I suppose the important thing to remember is that that wasn't the case not so not so very long ago nobody looked at uh, battery storage along with uh, with the wind power why do you think that was well cost really um I, I can't remember the exact figures but it's something like in the last five years the capital costs of batteries have come down by something like 80 percent or something i mean it's been a really dramatic cost reduction um much the same way that we saw a very dramatic cost reduction for things like pv but potentially even more so for for battery um and it's it's a cost reduction that's not primarily come from scaling up in stationary storage in grids it's been it's been coming because of the usage of batteries in consumer devices and then more recently in in electric cars um so that's one one big thing um it's suddenly become feasible because it's much cheaper to do i would say is is the big one um i mean it kind of raises the issue that over the last few years energy storage if you if you mention energy storage to someone there's 90 percent chances what they what they hear is is lithium-ion battery storage. Um, it's important, I think, to remember that there's been energy storage for a long, long time. There's lots of pumped hydro energy storage around the world. Um, and so I guess another thing from why that's not grown is that's a very different kind of planning, permitting, construction, siting proposition. Whereas I think the other reason that batteries have grown as well as cost is, is ease. Um, you can, they arrive containerized in a bunch of shipping containers you can plonk them on site connect them together and you can have a, a sort of multi tens potentially 100 megawatt system up and running within a matter of weeks um so i, I guess they're probably the main <coughs> the main two issues as to why um i guess the other less to do with the storage technology but my market point of view um the other demand reason is the the growth of renewables so as we've got more wind and solar into the system uh, more requirements or it's more helpful and more valuable um, to be able to do some time shifting um, which is what storage is all about. 
Indeed. Um, coming back to some of the, quite a lot in there, but coming back to some of the points, because these batteries weren't in developments as recently as five or six years ago, certainly for wind farms. But I think um, the renewables then went down a solar route in the, uh, the UK. I think costs of the solar kit themselves, uh, that plummeted as, uh, as well. Uh, and the solar, obviously the sun uh, doesn't shine all the time. Wind does uh, spin all the time. It's 24-7, uh, although it's variable within that time frame. But solar obviously isn't. So I think with the solar developers, often coming from a non-renewables mindset background, it was a there is something of a renewables um, establishment now, and you see the same people on the uh, the conference circuit and the the exhibitions and so forth. But solar was slightly a, a dog's leg um, to that, in that a lot of the um, developers came from a finance background, City of London landowners, and they brought a different mindset to it. And I think part of that was solving this dilemma of, you know, you might only get 10, uh, 10 hours of, uh, of sunshine in 24 hours, uh, but what do we do? So they then started introducing battery into the scheme, and uh, it worked, uh, certainly for time shifting, as you mentioned. Perhaps you could get a better price for your product if you shoved it back a couple of hours, saved it in a battery, and then, and then sold it at uh, tea time or something. Uh, and that, that, that then um, encouraged the, um, the industry to, to, to use that as a norm and then coupled with the cost, obviously, any any project developer knows that cost is everything, drive out the costs. And if you've got an 80% reduction in a key component of your project, then that is going to help it overcome project uh, project hurdles. You also touched upon something that I thought was interesting, uh, John, and that is um, the economics of this. Because um, it's not all straightforward with regard to, uh, to, to storage, how to make it uh, pay. Is there anything you'd like to say about that? It's not a case of straightforward, oh, this is how much it costs, this is the money we get for it. That's the project economics. Yeah, well, it sort of ties in a little bit. I, just to come back to, you mentioned solar. I mean, actually, in this country, if you look at the big battery projects, they're actually not really time-shifting solar from for certain times of day to, to match price, because um, most of those renewable projects have fixed tariffs or CFDs with guaranteed prices or corporate PPAs or whatever. Um, in this country, the majority of, of big-scale battery that's been deployed so far has actually been very short time um, time shifting. It's been for frequency response. Um, now, I mean, that's an interesting <coughs> issue in itself when we get to how you get paid. Um, I mean, that ori originally that was driven by um, the National Grid came up with some four-year contracts um, for frequency response, which was was won by by several several battery projects. That kind of kick-started it. Um, and there's been more since. Um, and also, because the costs have come down, now what you're finding is that solar farms in particular are sticking batteries alongside, um, because as well as the revenue from selling the solar electricity, they can also generate some revenue through frequency response. Now, they're not long contracts. I mean, frequency response in this country, you're talking about contracts that are only kind of a, a few weeks to a, a few months in length. There's at the frequency response market, there's there's lots of different kind of <clears throat> lots of complexity to it. Um, but it's basically a merchant market. It's a it's a variable um, extra revenue stream. But it's a, it's a top up. Um, now that that's different. I mean, this gets us into kind of different countries. Um, in other markets, um, if you look at if you look at Australia, for example, the kind of well-known what people call the, the Tesla battery out in Australia, um, that was actually built again on a, the back of a frequency response or a, in actually a grid services contract. Um, but they do also do some time shifting. Um, and there's some other big batteries now in Australia that are doing time shifting, taking advantage of um, very high peak prices. Um, in the States, 
again it varies from state to state in the, on the east coast um, you've got batteries that have tended to be more about the kind of grid service side if you look at california these days and, and arizona um, you've got batteries that are starting to replace peaking gas plants um, by tying up with solar and that is about time shifting so that's time shifting for sort of three or four hours so so the in terms of how you make money i mean it very it's very market specific um, it depends if there's a route by which you can make money from grid services and in some markets you can but lots of markets you can't there's just no there's no open auctions there's no market competition for those services um, it depends on how much those services are worth. Um, it depends on if there is a business case for shifting um, big chunks of energy from time, which depends on the uh, peak price versus the non-peak price. Um, where you have had, I guess, more battery success in the UK around time shifting is more behind the meter, um, particularly commercial industrial, um, because they're exposed to... A whole manner of peak pricing regimes which have complicated names like du duos and tnuos and um, triads and all this kind of stuff <laughs> i won't we won't get into well, a discussion welcome, of that, welcome to our world folks <laughs> yeah but essentially but i mean the basic point is as a consumer you don't really you don't really have any exposure to kind of the big peak non-peak price differences but as business customers they do and so certainly they've there are plenty of behind the meter business customer examples where they're using batteries to time shift to save save cost save their grid import costs so i mean it's a kind of slightly complicated answer but i think it reflects yeah. the reality different markets have different services that make sense different yeah. ways to monetize them and different motivation to use yeah. them we talked with Lincoln, didn't we, Lincoln Blevians, a couple of weeks ago about the Californian experience. And we, I think I sensed a degree of uh, nervousness when Enron was mentioned a few years ago. And uh, obviously, I think in Australia, you mentioned the Tesla one, but wasn't that a result of uh, an outage? And then uh, didn't the showman, <laughs> showman said, well, I'll fix this in 100 days or something. Uh, and, and then lo and behold, it's, it's worked. And that sends a signal out. Um, you mentioned the, uh, the resilience uh, needed for networks and frequency drops are uh, penalised, as we know. So from a grid point of view, is it 50 hertz in the UK, the uh, the grid runs at? Should it fall below that? You need something quick. Uh, it might be a hydro station, but you need something quick to come on uh, on top. And has, has that been one of the drivers, that, that quick frequency response? Yeah, well, that was... Um, so a couple of things there. So certainly I mentioned the UK auctions. That was what they called enhanced frequency response, the ones that were a few years ago, and they were four-year contracts. And the specification there was that you had to respond within less than a second. So effectively, it was there's only batteries able to do that. Um, I think in France, is it? Uh, I think they've got some contracts that are going to be along. The, the, different countries call things differently. You have secondary reserves primary reserves different we have fast frequency response there's different countries use different terminology um what you what you are starting to see now is is one or two countries where they are setting out specific tenders for systems that can react sub-second which which effectively means means battery system i mean the tesla one is an interesting example for a number of reasons it it did yeah it came into play because in the the winter of uh, sorry well their summer of uh, get my ears right i think it's 2016 2017 um in early 2017 they had some blackouts um because they for <clears throat> because they had very high demand very hot weather um which coincided with 
uh, some power lines down so they couldn't import power. So this was in South Australia. So South Australia basically um, got into a situation where um, they, and they still have, where on very high levels of peak demand, uh, the prices were being set by gas generators um, and they were gas peaking plants and they were charging, um, I think that's capped at something like 14,000 um, Australian dollars per megawatt hour. But then um, there was an occasion where they actually ended up with, with blackouts. And yeah, so the government, South Australian government had a tender. The tender was in March um, and they basically wanted a, a battery storage system because they thought that would help in terms of some of the grid recovery, frequency response and other, some of the other grid services side of things. So they had a tender in March. Um, which all the winners were announced in July um, and then the deadline to get everything up and running was the end of the year um, and in actual fact the rest of the time frame I think it was um, September uh, Tesla started construction um, it was up and running actually I think the middle of November it was certainly up and running by the 1st of December which is what Elon Musk had, had um, promised <clears throat> um, so yeah it was an example that was a 100 megawatt 135 megawatt hour battery so it's a big a big system um, went from not even a twinkle in the eye at the start of the year to being up and running and in the system by the end of the year and it had a huge impact on it brought down prices of um, grid services um, it had a huge impact on that because it introduced a very fast responding um, competitor those again those grid services were kind of dominated prior to that by um, by these gas plants um, and the other thing it's an interesting example of was which is relevant to storage generally is only part of the battery is actually reserved if you like to deliver the government tender the, those grid services um they've got they they built they oversized the battery for that so that they had spare capacity that they can then use in the merchant markets so they can use for for trading both in grid services markets and also in wholesale markets buying when it's cheap and selling at these very high peak prices and and they've been making a lot of money it's been a very successful project um and so that last point is <clears throat> this issue of what people call revenue stacking in storage um and that's quite a buzzword the idea that batteries they're still they're still relatively expensive they're not not, not dirt cheap so if you're going to have an asset um then if you can do more than one thing with it if you can sell more than one service out of the same battery that's that's quite a, a goal in many of these systems um, at the moment well my words are quite it sounds like a very successful and considering that it was only four years ago the uh, the uk grid element of uh, of this, and then uh, I wish uh, offshore wind farms could be delivered within a hundred days of the first. As I say, it was the tender was in March, it was up and running on the system by the end of uh, November, I think. So, so it's a, yeah, it a few months, it's kind of <clears throat> from tender to operation for a hundred megawatt project was, was okay. about eight months. Okay, picking on a few things that you've said, and you've said quite a lot uh, of, of very interesting uh, points today, but coming back to the uh, storage isn't just battery, mm. and of course we've got hydro, but I suspect that there aren't that many large-scale hydro um, areas in the UK that have not that are not developed or not aware uh, where the developers, I worked for a company called Scottish Hydro, and I think uh, it's pretty well known where the hydro resource is. Those sites that do remain are perhaps contentious, if you think offshore wind is uh, delivering uh, energy, but uh, the hydro might be uh, very expensive to uh, to build out 
um, the, the, the mechanisms are for a, a lower long-term yield type of thing rather than a, a profitable short-term uh, project with very few sites available. Uh, from a developer point of view, I think a few things that might be worth uh, saying, because I have developed uh, elements of, uh, of batteries on integrated schemes. And a few things that we looked for on, on, on the developer side of the meter is they're not particularly difficult permitting-wise. They're not the most exciting product, if, unless you find shipping containers uh, exciting, of course, because that's basically what the... Uh, they look like. Uh, so you get a couple of dozen of those, paint them a kind of light green like the old caravan sites to to blend in and find a place reasonably close to the substation on the uh, on the client side, if you like, to site them to reduce the, uh, the cabling uh, element. I've heard anecdotally that uh, some of the substations being built in uh, Scotland are being oversized. Uh, and that's from the grid side of things. They oversize them to stick a, a battery in there. There are penalties for the grid failing to meet its network resilience targets. And I think uh, some of the grid um, operators or the grid itself just takes it, well, why not put a battery on, on our side? Uh, and that will help us not get punished when, uh, when if, some, if there is an outage or something uh, happens. I saw some quite recent uh, footage, quite dramatic footage um, of outages in the storms. And lo and behold, the Tesla household on a domestic level was the one with the battery still shining and the uh, house was resilient, whilst all around the, um, the neighbourhood was cast into, uh, into darkness. In, in, in the intro, I think you also mentioned electric vehicles. Have they been a driver for, for batteries in the UK and beyond? Well, I mean, they're, they're certainly a driver for the manufacturing scale and sort of continued cost reduction. Um, I mean, the, uh, already, uh, even with a relatively small EV market, I think in terms of volume of, of lithium-ion cells that are, are manufactured, I think the vehicle market is the biggest chunk of that. And certainly, if you look at any growth forecasts, um, it's really going to dominate um, the the manufacturing. So that that will have a big impact on cost, on how much these things cost. Um, it will have an impact on technology development and so on. Um, I mean, in terms of, I guess the other thing that's interesting in terms of EVs is the fact that they're they're big batteries in themselves. So I mean, the the biggest, the kind of big Tesla. And Tesla's now, I think, 100 kilowatt hour batteries. Um, your sort of more standard Nissan Leaf is kind of 30 or 40 kilowatt hour battery. Uh, now, that's bigger than the kind of batteries that you'd buy for a residential storage system. Um, the Tesla Powerwall, I think, is 13 kilowatt hours, quite a bit smaller. Um, so the other thing that's obviously generating quite a lot of interest is, given that these batteries on wheels are kind of parked up most of the time, is can you actually start to utilize those um, and, and potentially make money out of them? So various ideas from to get back to your resilience thing and outages. Um, to be honest, if you've got your fully charged electric car parked at the house, um, that's going to that's going to have more capacity to keep your house running than any um, domestic um, stationary battery you might have in your in your boiler room. Um, so one idea is to use have the car be able to feed into the house as a as a source of electricity, um, and then the other one is to be able to feed it in even further, and that's what we call vehicle to grid. So the idea that you can you can use these um, reasonably large um, battery resources when they're plugged into a charger, not just to take electricity out of the grid, uh, but potentially to feed into the grid. Um, now, obviously, not for any length of time. That's going to mean you jump in your car and you can't go anywhere. But things like frequency response, we're talking about maybe a few seconds um, can be enough to stabilise grid frequency while something else kicks in. Um, yeah, and the key yeah. to that is not obviously individual cars, but it's it's what we call aggregation. It's the idea of 
um, you'll have somebody who whose job it is, is to manage all these individual charges and all these individual cars. And also it could be individual um, home storage as well. You, you've seen that already. Um, there was the most recent one I saw. There was there's a company called Sonnen, which is a German company, but they are um, they're building over the course of this year a, an apartment block in the states. Um, I think it's about it's quite big. I think it's I'm guessing, but it's a few hundred apartments. They'll all have PV on the roof. They'll all have um, a battery in the apartment, um, and they're they're putting it into a virtual power plant. So they've contracted with the utility that this apartment block. I think the total capacity of all those domestic batteries comes to um, it's, it's sort of a, a few megawatt hours worth of energy storage. It's a reasonably reasonably decent chunk of storage, um, and they they can contract that to the utility, so that the utility it looks and feels like a grid battery, and they can do things like um, charge and discharge, manage frequency, that kind of stuff. Um, but it's not a single battery, it's lots of individual batteries in people's houses. So the same idea goes with cars, but obviously with cars, because they're bigger individual batteries, you can potentially get a very large virtual battery or virtual power plant if you aggregate them together. Yeah, it's uh, quite exciting. We touched upon this in our Energy in the Internet of Things podcast and, and, and the uh, the other podcasts on oil and gas decarbonisation, but I think Sonnet, uh, wasn't that an acquisition of, uh, of my old company, Shell, who I used to work for? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, uh, sure. yeah. that's right. So it is interesting, isn't it, that uh, the oil and gas companies are now moving into what you might call a, a utility type of uh, sphere and are now starting to look at uh, aggregated uh, sales of, of battery electricity on a local a local level. An interesting uh, trajectory, uh, I think, uh, there. You mentioned earlier about the cost, cost falls. And I think you mentioned a rather dramatic figure of, eight, is that right, 80% cost reduction in five years or something like something that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. So, and is that, yeah. Is that trajectory likely to to continue into into future years as well, or is, it, is that about as, as cheap as they'll get? Um, no, there's no reason to think they won't stop. They won't keep coming down. Um, now, obviously, they can't they can't reduce in a in a linear fashion year by year, number but zero. Um, so there'll be some tailing off. Um, and also, I think what's important is there'll be because that market, the volume is going to be driven by cars. A lot of it depends what happens in the EV market. If you have oversupply um of these factories and less people than they think end up buying evs um you'll have oversupply so the, the costs will be cheap um on the other hand if you if the ev market starts growing very quickly and you've got car manufacturers desperately bidding um, bidding the price up so that they've got battery supply and then that'll have a knock-on effect potentially on the on the rest of the storage market so so the price i mean the, the manufacturing costs will continue to go down the actual price that you can buy them for, which is a different thing, obviously, then depends on supply and demand. So it depends on how the how the the market, um, not just the supply availability, um, shakes out, but also how much demand grows. Uh, and as I say, that'll be partly driven by energy storage on the grid or in in homes, but a big chunk of it will be driven by what happens in the in the EV market as well. Okay, well, today's discussion is about storage, not mm. just uh, EVs. There've been a couple of announcements on. Uh, carbon capture and storage, which has been a bit unfashionable in recent years. It's always been around, or it seems to have been around forever without much uh, much happening under different guises in the uh, the UK. And of course, the other new kid on the block is uh, hydrogen as, uh, as well. How do you see the three or four separate storage technologies 
interacting? Are they exclusive or are there synergies between them? Is, is there a fusion between some of the things that uh, hydrogen and carbon capture and storage can do? Is uh, Could you have a, a fuel cell powering a, an EV? Uh, with, and I know that we've discussed that elsewhere, but it might be worth just uh, refreshing. Uh, so the storage sphere is current. It's uh, been mentioned in this year's budget in, uh, in various guises, uh, but it's also fluid. And uh, I suppose... In the early days of renewables, it was wind and biomass and various other tech and wave and tidal and wind prevailed. Are we are we quite at that stage regarding storage, or is is, is the one tech that the really the government's keen to back, or is EV the front runner, or is it CCS? How, how do you see that panning out? Well, I mean, it goes back at, at the start. We sort of mentioned uh, batteries certainly aren't the only way of, of doing storage. They've kind of dominated for the last few years, um, but but it. You are. I think you will start to see some other storage technologies um, get a bit more interest. I mean, there are other types of batteries. There aren't just lithium-ion batteries. There are things called yeah, flow this, batteries. And this um, cryo battery, largely because I love the name. Yeah, <laughs> I'm watching that uh, five miles down the road. So there's, yeah, there's, there's flow batteries. Um, there's, as you say, your kind of. I think what you you mean the kind of liquid air storage, yeah. the one in Berry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a compressed air energy storage. Um, still get some mention. There's pumped hydro. Um, again, very difficult to get new sites, but there's some interesting stuff there with kind of old quarries and so on, old mining um, mining pits. Some pumped hydro stuff being done. Uh, one of the things that was interesting that Lincoln talked about the other day when we did our California um, second California podcast. Um, was that they, from a utility point of view, were very much interested in looking at alternatives um, to, to lithium ion. And the big driver for that was the kind of lifetime of the asset. So they were one of the issues with, with lithium ion is the, I mean, the warranties have been getting longer. And I think some of the kind of, if you like, the, the kind of more pessimistic views that they only last a few years of uh, proving not to be true. They're lasting a reasonably long time if you manage them well, um, but they're not 20, 25, 30 year long term um, assets in the same way that kind of a pumped hydro scheme would be or a, an underground um, compressed air energy storage facility would be or or in future, as you say, something like storing hydrogen in a salt cavern would be. Um, so I think you're seeing a bit more interest in particularly from a kind of big scale point of view, storage as assets which have to have a kind of longer lifespan and are seen as, and I think you mentioned it earlier, more not necessarily quick, high return assets, but more strategic, long term, uh, lower return assets. So I think that's that will drive some interest in other ways of storage. Um, and then tied in with that is is the time span thing. So what as I mentioned, with, with frequency response in the UK, and we've seen the same in other markets with frequency response, what batteries have done is they've, they've brought the price down. Um, and the reason they brought the price down is that there's actually there's actually only a, a, a relatively small, compared to the whole system size, um, demand for frequency response. You don't need an enormous amount of capacity to start to saturate that market, because we're talking about relatively small ups and downs. Um, and so... The big growth going forward is more likely to be from longer-term energy storage. It's going to be shifting renewables either for a few hours during the day or, or ultimately even having to shift seasonally. So in countries like the UK and parts of the States where you've got big seasonal differences, um, how do you, in the UK, for example, um, we have much more electricity demand in the winter than we do in the summer. Um, if we're going to size if we're going to build lots of offshore wind and solar and, and hopefully onshore wind in future, 
um, to meet uh, demand in the winter, we're going to end up with surplus supply in the summer. So what do we do with it? Do we do we just curtail it? Do we just let it go? Or do we store it in some long-term energy storage? And that's not going to be battery. That potentially is the sort of thing that people are looking at hydrogen for, um, looking at compressed air energy storage, looking at other kind of power to fuel type storage systems. So so to get back, I mean, to get back to the point you mentioned hydrogen specifically, um, I mean, that's certainly one of the things that people who are in favour of hydrogen kind of point to is that it's a it's potentially a long-term store of energy because it's a fuel it's a commodity you can you can stick it somewhere you don't have to use it straight away um there's no real time limit on how long you can you can store it for um which is true that the question is is there a business case for it and, and at the moment i'd say the the answer is no for the for long-term storage there's just at the moment there's no there, there isn't a need for it. It's one of those difficult things that there will be a need the more we build out <coughs> more renewables. Um, but at the moment, if you were sitting down trying to put together a spreadsheet and monetize it, um, it's going to cost a lot to produce, um, but there's no real revenue stream available to, to take advantage of it. Yeah, I was at uh, an event on Tuesday at um, Thornton, an ex-shell site. The pectins are still on the door and elsewhere. Big research facility where the Spitfire fuels used to be developed for the uh, for the war and the Formula One. And that's hydrogen is uh, is everywhere there. They were really pushing ahead innovation uh, wise. And I think the business case, I mean, obviously early stages of industries, it's a, it's a case of special pleading, I suppose. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, offshore wind we've discussed in the past, and it's no doubt that the subsidy uh, helps the offshore wind industry get up and running in the UK. And I think there's a perception that that's been a big success, that it's now uh, an enabler of uh, other industries and without repeating what we've said in our hydrogen we've got specific podcasts which listeners can uh, dig out of our archive several on hydrogen and those other ones where hydrogen is discussed here hydrogen i suppose is part of the storage mix along with batteries and along with other tech as uh, as well i think lincoln also mentioned did he say that utah had salt um, caverns rather like cheshire has in the um, yeah that's right uh, yeah in, so they in the were uk about that for for hydrogen storage and it's strange how things go. When I was with the utilities, we were looking at storage caverns for natural gas. It was a big push. We need natural gas uh, facility of storage. And studies were built and they went massively over budget and everybody uh, recoiled. And now some of these schemes are like being dusted off, um, stamped the word hydrogen over natural gas. And, uh, mm. I suppose in, in circular economic principles being rehashed. Um, we mentioned the one up at uh, is it St. Fergus and Peterhead and carbon capture and storage. That one seems to have been around since I was, I was a little and rather like nuclear fusion. It's like, oh, my God, is that are people trying to say that this is still current and still the future? Or is it just uh, other tech has, has enabled, it's moved into a situation like renewables has, to enable old ideas to get a second purpose and to suddenly fit the new uh, the new paradigm, if you like. Yeah, the, I mean, there's an element of that. Um, I mean, there's 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 certainly companies with existing facilities. Um, so with, as you say, existing gas storage facilities and salt caverns and so on, who eye a way to stay in business or to make use of the asset they've already got. Um, but also, as we add more. Uh, renewables into the system um the demand for longer term storage will will grow um and so there's there will be demand there it's just how do you make uh, is there you've got to be able to monetize it there's either got to be a big enough price difference between when you sell it and when you stick it into storage or there's got to be some other mechanism some capacity based mechanism to do that um i mean the challenge the other challenge we I mentioned we've talked a bit about cost the other challenge that any storage technology is going to have 
um, competing against batteries, also efficiency, the round trip efficiency, because with a battery you get most of what you put into it back out again. The efficiency, uh, I mean, at the individual battery level is is kind of 90 odd percent, and even at the system level is kind of maybe 85 percent. So, um, whereas if you're turning something into hydrogen and then turning it back to electricity, the round trip efficiency is pretty horrible because you you lose a chunk of it. So electrolysis you might lose a third of it well no not a third might lose 25 percent of it in terms of the electricity you use versus the hydrogen energy content you get and then if you want to then turn it back to electricity and in a good fuel cell you'll use another lose another half of it along the way so so that's that's another challenge i think that sort of means that if you can do it if it's practical and cost effective to do it with something like a battery you'd tend to do that because it's more efficient but there are some applications where you can't you, you're not going to stack up shipping containers to store a summer's worth of <laughs> excess solar production and, and use it in the winter um so it's it's you kind of have this spectrum between um you you choose if, if things are more efficient and you can you can do it you do it that way um but there will be some applications which it makes sense to use in a, a storage technology which albeit on the surface is less efficient actually overall if you look at the overall economics and the overall costs ends up being much cheaper and things like um sticking it underground in a in a salt cavern the the cost per kilowatt hour of storage are, are much much smaller than the cost per kilowatt hour of sticking it in a battery but obviously you've got big setup costs uh, you've got um <clears throat> you've got efficiency losses and so on so it's kind of balancing all that out it becomes a much longer term kind of strategic investment i would say rather than a kind of quick yeah get your money back in a few years and, and move on to the next project a couple of things that might be worth picking up on there because again there's a lot in there of a lot of information and a lot of uh, very detailed analysis but a couple of things that struck me one is this aggregated word that you used mm. before and uh, i wonder if you could say well actually if you were to aggregate the fact that say in the uh, the liverpool bay area a lot of the gas fields are going to be exhausted in three years and will be available in a very timely manner that might be a consideration or you're going to plug into your model the fact that north sea oil platform's going to need decommissioning and you might be wise to think about repurposing rather than pay hundreds of millions of, uh, of pounds to uh, to whoever you, want, who you pay to. Uh, and then, of course, the other thing, I suppose, is policy. I mean, um, industrial strategies were no-no in the UK for many years, 30-odd years. They were the, uh, the word, the I word, if you like, that nobody uh, discussed. It's like a relic from semi-communist times. And then suddenly, under a Tory regime, they dug out of the archive, perhaps along with carbon capture storage schemes and dusted down and represented and um, perhaps uh, perhaps the timing is auspicious at the moment yeah i mean as with anything in energy um the policy and 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 sort of political aims if you like um and economic drivers are going to play economic drivers outside the project economic drivers more widely um job creation all those things are going to play into what the energy storage landscape looks like um, in the long run um, not just the individual individual project economics and the the cost of a battery and all that kind of stuff so so yeah, yeah certainly uh, and that, I, that certainly seems to be true of hydrogen at the moment a lot of the um, the drivers around uh, around the hydrogen um, <coughs> side of things is, is around industrial clusters for example at least here in the UK um, there's a big feeling that it'll make most sense around kind of what we call hydrogen hubs or hydrogen industrial clusters where you can kind of have the production and the utilization close together you don't need to move it about and, and you probably don't need to store it you, you probably use it 
almost as quickly as you're as you're generating it so you, you might not need enormous stores of the stuff um so that <coughs> issues like that um become a big part of the economic case isn't it so it's not it's not all about thermodynamics and efficiency and so on so yeah. so yeah that's that's certainly certainly true yeah i mean uh, you mentioned okay. aggregation briefly yeah, I, yeah. Guess, <laughs> I guess um the, the benefit of aggregation well there's a few, there's a few it depends where you are in that supply chain i mean one is that we're talking about assets which are, are generally behind the meter they don't they don't have to be um but if you're talking about vehicle to grid or you're talking about aggregating home batteries um they're behind the meter so in terms of permitting planning and all that kind of stuff they're, they're sitting in in someone's um someone's premises domestic premises company premises or whatever so there's less of an issue there um potentially even though those um site owners have, have either paid for the battery either indirectly or, or indirectly through some kind of leasing subscription basis um for the aggregator themselves therefore they don't they don't have this issue about having necessarily to own lots of assets. Um, they can be very small, um, <coughs> slick companies that basically have um, be a bunch of computer technicians doing fancy algorithms that decide when to charge and discharge the different batteries. Um, some people's signing contracts on either side to, um, to generate the revenue. Uh, some marketing and salespeople, but it's a bit like... Um, what we call you call virtual mobile operators so you'd get your um your mobile phone subscription with virgin mobile but they didn't own any any telecoms infrastructure they owned a billing system um that was it um they they basically hooked on the back of other assets in this case mobile phone networks um so it's the same idea um it's this idea of you're using assets that other people own that are distributed around the network and you just you're you're um, you're controlling them so they behave in a in a more coordinated manner, and that adds value to people like the grid operator um, or or other other people that might want to buy the services of that asset. So, I think I mean I think it's a it's a hugely important model. It'll be very disruptive. Um, the more the more distributed assets we have, um, not just storage but also generation and so on. Um, I think the more the aggregation of them will become a, an important part of the whole the whole scene. Yeah, it's a, I mean, we use phrases like, I mean, some great words today, aren't they? What's that virtual aggregated market did you come up with? And cryo batteries and uh, virtual power plants. It's an exciting world in this new new world of electricity where it never, never used to be phrases like that. Didn't People didn't even know, uh, know, know existed. And so the disruption, uh, and I suppose uh, for people like the National Grid who do have uh, stakeholders and so forth, they need to be driving this process and they are holding uh, frequency response uh, kind of competitions and, uh, and so forth, engaging with the um, the energy future, given our climate aspirations and the reiteration of the 2050 target and so forth, can only perhaps expect more of this kind of, uh, of disruption. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for people like, I mean, for National Grid, um, I mean, it, it's, it's great. I mean, it's another storage provides another option, which is competing with traditional power plants to provide things like frequency response. Um, they've also got a project um, where they're looking at whether storage facilities can provide black start for example uh, if the grid goes down um so there's there's all sorts of national grid are very keen on on storage of, of various types um, because it's very responsive um but also as i say simply from a competitive point of view there if there's more people um 
taking part in in auctions and tenders and so on uh, then that tends to drive the price down so national grid potentially can get the same service capabilities or even better service capabilities at a lower cost than they were getting before when they were limited to fewer um fewer vendors so so yeah from a system point of view it's great there's obviously implications then for um as with anything winners or losers <laughs> so people providing this, these services i mean there's also in the long run there's obviously implications for things like electricity prices because if you can if you can move things around from when it's cheap uh, to when it's expensive then the more you do that the more you equalize those prices anyway so i mean if you had a, a perfectly flexible market with lots of storage in there and lots of ability to shift electricity around from when it was scarce to when it was um, most in demand um and then you could end up with a market which was the price volatility was very small and um, that would be a kind of long-term aim but obviously if the price volatility is very small then it reduces the business case you have for buying when it's cheap and selling when it's expensive so there's a, as with all these things there's going to be a balance um there's going to be limits to storage and some of those limits might be placed might arrive because of its own success if you see what i mean so the, yeah. the more storage you have the less the less yeah. you the less the benefit for the extra storage that you add on yeah. a marginal level my word well there's um, a lot in there we've not really touched upon uh, some of the tidal energy uh, how that um so it's not really a storage mechanism, but it's just, I suppose, a baseline augmentation uh, kind of uh, element. Uh, but there seems to be in, uh, a lot in uh, this uh, the storage uh, field at the uh, at the moment. Is there anything else? Anything else that we should be adding uh, that, so to make the complete storage analysis, if you like? Any other technology that's coming through that we've not touched upon? Uh, yeah, well, I think, as I say, I think what would be interesting to watch over the next few years is is the non the non battery side of it? I mean, you mentioned tidal with tidal lagoons. I've seen designs where storage was was part of it. Um, you can, because obviously the idea of a tidal lagoon is you you're basically storing water behind the lagoon um, and then and then letting it out through a through a turbine when you want the electricity. Um, and so you can choose when to do that. You can um, you don't have to you don't have to let it out at a certain certain time obviously you get the most power when you've got the biggest difference between high and low tide but the, you can add a certain level of storage i've seen designs for tidal lagoons looking to do that um i mean whether i'm a bit dubious as to how quickly um if at all tidal tidal does manage to grow but there are some projects out there that are still looking for um funding um, but certainly, as I say, there's pump storage. I don't think pump storage has, has gone away. It's, it's going to be difficult to build new sites, but I think there, there's some interest in what you call brownfield sites. As I say, old quarry sites. There's one in North Wales where they're looking at doing that, an old slate quarry where they've got a quarry halfway up a mountain. Fill that with water, um, drop it down <coughs> to the river at the bottom, and you've got a you've got a power plant. Pump it back up again, and you've got a storage system. So yeah, there's um, some in Scotland, Scotland as well. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, and some I'd say some of the other things you've mentioned, which I, I don't think so. Things like the cryogenic, the liquid air energy storage. I mean, that's very suited to industrial sites where you've already got um, kit involved in refrigeration. Um, also weirdly it uses waste heat is one of the ways that it can make that cycle more efficient so again that suits to industrial industrial sites so i think there'll be as and hydrogen obviously we've mentioned that the hydrogen is is definitely is, is going to happen um in some form it's still um you can still debate as to what it will be used for and where it'll be most successful again my feeling in at least in the short run 
and it kind of matches what you're seeing in terms of funding from the government is that the focus of the GARE will be on industrial sites and industrial hubs and particular locations rather than as a kind of countrywide ubiquitous <coughs> energy system. Yeah. Um, so I think I think that will be interesting to watch. Is is yes, there'll be <laughs> batteries might be kind of the if you like the the default for a lot of things, especially where you need very quick response. Um, but I think you'll see a growth in some of these other technologies and these other storage energy storage mechanisms um, in different locations where there are different benefits in terms of um, the type of location, what you're trying to achieve, the length of storage you're trying to achieve, lots of storage applications you don't need, ridiculously fast response. So especially if you're time shifting for long periods and it's predictable you don't you don't need it to respond in within a second or two um you can choose a different technology where the the storage um the bulk storage is cheaper even if some of the um the kind of response characteristics are not as good so so i think you'll start to see more of a mix and and you'll see certain niches where certain technologies uh, make more sense so so yeah i mean there's, there's plenty to watch and then obviously the the economics will be a constantly changing picture as well my word. Well, thank you for that uh, that summary. Obviously, there's plenty to watch. I know that you're watching, as indeed am I. Um, I suppose the, the thing to mention is, obviously, we hope listeners found this uh, discussion of interest. So let us know uh, your thoughts, please. And if you've got any future ideas for uh, podcasts, let us know also. I think this is number 26, John. We're on. <laughs> so, okay. uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I came. I, I logged onto the site earlier, and that number came up. So that's number twenty-six. And so we'd love it if our listeners uh, came with suggestions for subjects they would like us to cover in the renewable energy, clean tech, and the wider strategic energy picture. I think we're we'll, uh, happy to have a discussion uh, on that. Is there anything else you'd like to to add before we say uh, thank you to our listeners for uh, for listening today? Yeah, no, I just just reiterate that really. I mean, I, I guess today we've talked about a, a sort of more a, a kind of ongoing issue um, we've we've had podcasts in the past which have been very much kind of reacting to certain events such as the um <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago with the um <clears throat> renew the sort of renewed interest in onshore wind and solar over here for example so so yeah we'll continue to do a mix of podcasts which are kind of more um <clears throat> time specific um and then ones which are more general and yeah suggestions suggestions welcome so look forward to hearing from you everyone so I suppose that's a good time to uh, to thank yeah. our listeners for, uh, for for listening to us today and to, uh, to look forward to engaging with them again shortly. So uh, thanks from me, Charlie. Okay, yeah. And from me, John. Speak to you soon.